Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman. In part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, A New Teaching, Part 1, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Okay, so since uh, some of you are here for the first time, and you've only missed one uh, of the first of of these eight talks, I want to just summarize a bit what we talked about last time. So, we are, again, we are studying the gospel according to St. Mark, uh, which is, in many ways, the most neglected of the four gospels. Uh, and it's, there's a reason it's neglected. It's because uh, Matthew and Luke are sort of the revised versions of Mark. Uh, they're Mark plus a lot of other stuff that we're more familiar with, like the Sermon on the Mount or the, uh, the virgin birth. All of the famous stories about Jesus are in Matthew and Luke. Uh, but when you read Mark, uh, it's, you see, well, don't, don't Matthew and Luke already tell us these things? Why do we need to read Mark? Well, both Matthew and Luke use Mark as a source. About 80 to 90% of Mark is in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Uh, so if you've read Matthew or Luke, then you've already read Mark with some differences because Matthew and Luke like to tamper with Mark and to change Mark in various ways. So what we are studying today and these, over these eight weeks is the first gospel, the first written account of Jesus' life. It's not that when this person wrote that no accounts of Jesus' life existed, they just didn't exist in written form. Uh, presumably, Mark drew upon oral traditions about what Jesus said and did, We know from Paul that before Mark wrote, people had had ideas about uh, the meaning of Jesus' death. Uh, But unlike Paul, who is supremely uninterested in the life of of Jesus, he's interested in his death alone, Mark gives us a story of Jesus' life as well, as do the other gospel authors. Mark is the first person to do this. Uh, So if if we understand Mark, if we become familiar with Mark, then we're becoming familiar with essentially three-quarters of the whole gospel tradition in the New Testament. The fourth quarter, John's gospel, is a totally different bag, uh, but even if you know Mark and are familiar with it, you'll be able to discern how John is different. Uh, One of the liabilities we have uh, uh, when we use Scripture in church is that we generally only use it in small sound bites. You know, there's a lectionary reading, and sometimes the, uh, the priest may give an explanation of the context of that reading, but we generally don't spend a lot of time reading Gospels as a whole, which is a pity because, just like any good story, you have to read the whole thing to get the grasp of what the overall message is and how everything fits together. That's what we want to do in this course, is fit everything together so that it all is coherent and makes sense. So last time, last week, we started by looking at the very first verses of Mark's gospel. Mark begins his gospel with these words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the Christ, is just as it was written in the prophet Isaiah, quote, 
Then we have a quotation from the Old Testament. Uh, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you to prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Those are the first three verses of Mark's gospel. Um, So Mark is saying, this is the story that I'm about to tell you in the next 16 chapters. These, These lines from the Old Testament, that's the plot summary. And so last time we spent a good deal of time Um, examining where this plot summary comes from. Mark says it's from Isaiah, which is only true of half of it. Half of what I just recited to you is from the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. The other half is a a scenario, um, sort of a, 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 it's a soundbite from the Old Testament. It could either be from the book of Exodus or from the prophet Malachi, or it could be a melding of the two. But essentially, Mark takes symbols takes motifs from different parts of the Old Testament and puts them together and he says, this is the good news of Jesus. And so when we looked at each of those passages, those three passages from the Old Testament, we tried to put them in a larger context. What are they saying in their original context? So uh, to very briefly summarize, all three of them have to do with God sending a messenger in front of somebody else to go on a journey to reach a destination. God sends a messenger before someone else, in front of someone else, to go on a journey to get to a destination. In the book of Exodus, that destination is the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. The messenger is an angel that God sends in front of the Israelites on their journey through this wilderness to guard them on their way and to fight for them when they reach the land, to fight against the nations that will oppose them. In the book of Malachi, that other um, Old Testament source for this image of God sending a messenger before someone else, in that story, God sends the messenger in front of himself. And the destination is the temple, the temple of God in Jerusalem. Here, the messenger is not uh, leading the people of Israel. The messenger is the messenger of the covenant, the messenger who is going to warn the Israelites and especially their priests to change their ways. Uh, In the book of Malachi, there is something amiss with Israel, uh, the Israelites commit injustice against one another. They fail to offer satisfactory offerings to God in the temple. So God is going to send his messenger to cleanse the temple and to cleanse its priesthood so that it functions properly again. But there's a messenger being sent ahead of someone else on a journey to a destination. Finally, that second half of the plot summary prepare the way, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That is from the book of Isaiah, and that is the part of the book of Isaiah that tells about the, uh, the return of Israel from exile. The Israelites, the Jews, were exiled to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, uh, for 50 years, and now God says through the prophet Isaiah, your exile is at, is at an end. You, I will restore you to your land so that you may rebuild my destroyed temple and restore 
a community of worship to worship me. I will go before you on this desert highway that is being constructed. I will go in front of you. I will lead you back to the land so that when I arrive, um, Zion, Mount Zion, who is personified as a woman, will be a messenger of good news. And the good news is that Israel here on Mount Zion is your God. God is being restored to his temple just as his people are being restored to their land. In all of these scenarios, there's God sending a messenger on a journey to reach a destination which is either Jerusalem or the Jerusalem temple or the land of Israel. That, says Mark, is what my story of Jesus is going to involve. So the question that we first ask is, who is the messenger? Well, at first glance, the messenger appeared to be John the Baptist, who is the first character who appears in the story. John appeared, says Mark, in the wilderness, just like we heard there would be a messenger in the wilderness. He appeared in the wilderness proclaiming or calling Israel to repentance. So Israel is in a state of sin. John calls them to repentance by being baptized, immersed in water at the River Jordan, which is where Israel's original journey uh, from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land ended. Remember, you went on a journey from Mount Sinai through the wilderness to the Promised Land. The Promised Land is where the Jordan River is. So John is calling Israel back to its origins. Let us renew ourselves, restore ourselves as a nation. Because someone's coming after me, says John. Aha, okay, so John is the messenger um, preparing the way for someone else. The someone else turns out to be Jesus in the story, who also appears at this point in the narrative, is baptized by John, and receives a vision at his baptism. Very important to remind ourselves that what happens at Jesus' baptism is known only to Jesus. John the Baptist has no knowledge of Jesus. He doesn't notice him. There's no indication that he even gives him half a thought. He dunks him in the water. When Jesus arises out of the waters, starting at the beginning of Israel's journey, right at this, at this brink of the promised land, when Jesus does this, he sees the heavens torn apart and the spirit of God descending upon him and then the voice coming down from heaven announcing to him three things, which presumably he didn't know up until now. Otherwise, God wouldn't have to tell him this privately. You are my son, my beloved, in you am I am well pleased. You are my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. We talked about the background of these words. These are not random words. They are alluding to books of the Old Testament, just like the first three verses of Mark. Mark says, my story is about the Old Testament. So too, God or the divine voice says, um, <laughs> You, I'm, I'm commissioning you to fulfill a role that has been laid out in the Old Testament. In fact, three roles. You are my son. That's a royal designation for the king of Israel. So you're going to be a king. You are my beloved son. That's a reference to Abraham's son, Isaac, whom God commands Abraham to sacrifice as an offering to him in Genesis 22. So you're a king, but you're going to die as a sacrifice, as an offering to me. And in you I am well pleased, that is God's designation of the people of Israel. So you are going to become king, you are going to die, and in your life you will 
embody, you will enact the story of Israel. You are Israel. You, 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 you stand for what Israel stands for. So that's a pretty big, um, pretty big responsibility Jesus uh, gets laid on him at that moment. And before he even has time to think about it, God casts him out into the wilderness to test him, to see whether he is ready for this. He passes the test. He is tested by Satan, who is God's tester. He passes the test. And 40 days later, something bad happens. John, the Baptist, is arrested. He is thrown into prison. We're not told by whom, but he is silenced. His mission of calling Israel to repentance, to preparing the way for someone else has been aborted, has been silenced by an unknown opponent. And this is the story of every Old Testament story. When God tries to exercise his life-giving will for Israel, someone always opposes him. Usually that someone is a king, whether it be the Pharaoh of Egypt back in the Exodus whether it be a rival monarch, whether it be the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonians, you know, whoever it is, kings generally tend to be the bad guy because God is Israel's king. And the basic drama of the Old Testament is a contest of kingship, a contest of power between God and a rival. So we know that there's a rival somewhere out there. We haven't been told who it is. But at that moment, when John is arrested, Jesus leaves the wilderness, leaves the desert. He leaps forward and goes into Galilee, his homeland, where he came from, and he begins to proclaim a message. Jesus becomes the messenger. John was the messenger. Now Jesus becomes the messenger. The messenger is not one person. It is a role that different people in the story take up, like a baton in a relay race. Jesus picks up the baton And he announces this message. He says, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news being the kingdom of God has drawn near. So he's saying, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Therefore, repent of your ways, because God will otherwise judge you negatively. And believe, namely, believe in this message, believe that there is a regime change about to happen. There is, some, uh, there is some opponent of God in the world, and God is about to defeat that opponent. That's what the kingdom of God means. Look at all the places in the Old Testament where God exercises his power on behalf of Israel. The kingdom of God is about warfare between God and a rival. This is the message Jesus proclaims. And that's where we stopped last time. And now we're going to talk about how this introduction, this summary of Mark's story, the essence of the plot, uh, how it spreads out through the next 16 chapters. And so what I've done in this handout for today is I've given you what I call a bird's eye view of Mark's gospel. So imagine that that we're in an airplane taking off from the prologue of the gospel. We're taking off and we're We're ascending into the air. The airplane banks to the right or to the left, and we look down through our windows, and we can see the landscape. And it looks different than when we are on the ground. We see things differently from the air. We can see patterns 
when we move away from something, we can see patterns that we couldn't see when we're looking at it up close. So what I want to do uh, is give us a look at the big pattern of Mark's gospel. How is it arranged? What is the architecture of this story? And I'm going to suggest, and I think I already did mention this, but now we have some specific uh, verses that I can uh, tie it down to, that there are three parts to this gospel. There are three parts to this story corresponding to those three elements of Mark's uh, summary in the first three verses. There's the messenger, the journey, and the destination. And so if you look at this bird's eye view, I have first the beginning of the gospel, which is the first 15 verses, which we talked about last time. It begins with Mark saying, this is the biblical basis, this quoted scripture, this is the biblical basis of my story, and this is the story of the good news of Jesus, or the good news proclaimed by Jesus. And at the end of those 15 verses, Jesus proclaims that good news. So it begins with the word good news, and in verse 15, Jesus proclaims the good news. Right? The good news is that the kingdom of God is moving in. Then we look at the, at the three parts. The first part, I would characterize using the language of the summary of Mark's story. Jesus is preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness, which is Galilee. That's the geographical setting of these chapters that we're going to start studying today. Following that, Jesus embarks in part two on his journey, the way itself, the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And finally, part three, the Lord comes to his temple. The messenger of the Lord comes to his destination, which in Mark's gospel is the Jerusalem temple, just like in the book of Malachi, one of the three sources for Mark's plot summary. Now, what I want to point out is what I call bookends. So I introduced a concept last time, which I called the soundtrack. The soundtrack to Mark's gospel is like the soundtrack to a motion picture. It's a musical score in the background that tells you what kind of story you're in. And the musical background, the soundtrack, are those first three verses that we discussed. They tell us the story of the messenger on the way to the destination. Uh, that soundtrack will constantly be turning up in all our readings. Today, what I want to focus on is what I call the concept of a bookend. The, way, the reason why I came up with this outline of Mark is not, I didn't just come up with that in my own head. I observe that Mark uses what I call bookends. He designates, he tells us when we've come to the end of the first part of the drama and are ready to go to episode two or part two, he tells us when we're move, how we're moving forward in the storyline by repeating stories, by repeating motifs or images yeah, just like in a musical score, where, where a motif in a song will be repeated, a refrain will come up. Mark, we have to remember that, that none, no, no, uh, no biblical text had chapters and verses in it. You know, we, we tend to, to think of the Bible as having chapters and verses. It doesn't. Those are medieval monks who invented those to help them find their place where they wanted to read for that day. There are no numerical markers anywhere in the Bible. Instead, one of the ways that biblical authors, including Mark, tell, communicate to the readers or the hearers that we've just finished one bit and we're on to another is by repeating a story or an image or a symbol or even a word that's significant. They're called catch words sometimes. They're catchy. 
But what are these stories? So I just want to go through these. So this first section of part one, which is what we're going to talk about today, uh, chapters one through three, basically, um, is framed by two bookends. And the bookends are a repeated story of Jesus performing, I call it here a healing, but more properly, it would be performing an act of power in a synagogue, that is, say, a local community gathering place on the Sabbath. There's a story of this at the beginning, and there's a story of this at, the, uh, at chapter 3, uh, chapters 2, uh, the, the shift between what we call chapter 2 and 3. So it tells you when, you've, when you've come full circle in a particular movement of the story. Next, we have a frame or a bookend which has to do with Jesus calling 12 apostles. Right? He calls 12 disciples to be with him and to do what he does. In chapter 3, he calls them. In chapter 6, he sends them out. It's a repeated story. It tells us we've come full circle on a particular theme. Next, there are, in chapters between that framing chapters 6 through 8, we have two stories about Jesus performing another act of power, namely feeding thousands of people miraculously from loaves and fishes, right? There are two stories exactly alike, almost exactly alike. They frame a whole cycle of stories. They tell us that this is a unit of thought, a unit or a development in the story. And we can move on. As we go on into the later parts, we'll, we'll look at these. But always look for the bookends. And the bookends aren't just at these large chunks of the story. They're also at the micro level, too. And so what I have here, the second half of this page, it's, I call it a bird's eye view of Mark 1, 16 to 3, 12. I take these, this, this block of material and I break it down into what seems to be sort of patterned movements. I and, don't know if anybody else would find it helpful. It's going fast for me to actually look at some of these bookends or am I mm-hmm. the only one thinking that? Well, we're just about to do that. Okay. <laughs> we're just about to do that. Thank you. If we look at... Um, Right after Jesus proclaims his message, right after he becomes a messenger, proclaims the good news uh, about God's kingdom, the first thing he does is he walks along the side of the Sea of Galilee and he calls people to follow him. Peter and Andrew, James and John, right, who will later become apostles. He calls them and he says, come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of people, fishers of men. Fishers of human beings, really. I'll make you fishers of men. They're fishermen, right? So instead of fishing for fish, they'll fish for human beings. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to fish for human beings? Um, Well, if we look further on in the story, in fact, if we look at the end of this section, what we're talking about today, chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, there's a scene where many crowds gather around Jesus to hear him teach and to have him perform acts of power on their behalf. There are so many people that they are threatening to crush Jesus just because they're, they're mobbing him. The only way he can effectively be a messenger is if his followers put him in their boat and draw him a little out into the water, into a fishing boat. So here's this image of the fishermen, the fishers of fish, are now using their tools to fish for people. The the people are drawing towards the shore, towards Jesus, as fish in a net. 
So you have an image of fishers of men, which is then sort of completed or enacted or fulfilled at the end of this segment of the story. So that's a specific example. We'll see even more of these as we, as we look closely here. So if you look at the way I've divided this up into five segments, I want us to look at these segments which mirror one another. At the beginning of the story, after he calls people to help him to become fishers of people, he then performs an act of power. He enters a synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins to teach people. And everyone uh, is amazed at how he teaches them. And by the way, we're not told what he teaches them. Uh, Mark just tells us he was teaching them. He said everyone was amazed because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like the scribes. He taught them as one who had authority, not as though he had authority, but as one who does have authority. He taught them authoritatively, not like the scribes. So another group is mentioned, and they are defined as being not like Jesus, or Jesus not being like them. So presumably the scribes are to be understood as teachers, but they teach in a very different way than Jesus teaches. Now, what is, what is the meaning of this Jesus taught with authority and not like the scribes? Scribes are people who study the Bible. So anyone who studies the Bible sort of professionally or seriously or, or is engaged in the teaching of the Bible to others is fulfilling the role of a scribe. Now, when we study the Bible, and if we try to teach things about the Bible to other people, we're not going to say, well, I think that this, or, you know, this is what this means. And in fact, I don't need to talk about the scripture. I'm just going to tell you something on my own authority. The whole point about a scribe or someone who studies scripture is you study scripture because scripture is an authority. You study scripture because that's an authority and you're trying to draw upon that authority to shape your life, to shape the lives of others. But you don't claim any unique authority separate from scripture. So to say that Jesus didn't teach like the scribes isn't to say that the scribes thought they had authority and they didn't. It probably means Jesus did not appeal to scripture. Jesus didn't appeal to the Bible to, uh, to explain or justify his teachings. He simply told them the way it is, as though he himself were the source of all authority. So the very first theme that Mark interjects in the first thing Jesus does after proclaiming his message is he, Jesus displays authority. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.